Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant, mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecule spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion, game, ink weight, I'm every element around. Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. My name is Regina Barber de Graff, and I teach astronomy and physics at Western Washington University. And I'm here with my co-host today, a Western Washington University student and science reporter for the Planet Magazine, Jonathan Flynn. And we are super excited to interview um, best-selling author of novel turn film, The Martian, and with his newest book coming out, Artemis, Andy Weir. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, Spark Science is basically we have this conversation and we're very chronological on the show. So we're very like past, present, future because I'm a scientist and that's how my brain works. So we're going to go in the Wayback Machine and I'm going to ask you questions about your childhood. Okay. Okay. And so I was reading about you and your dad is a physicist. Yep. A particle physicist. Well, okay. Since, okay. You're, <laughs> since you're an actual physicist, I, I, I need to make the distinction. Yeah. He's, an, he's a linear accelerator physicist. Okay. So he's not, a, he's not going down to the quantum level on anything. He's not that kind of particle physicist. But that's he works still... with particles. <laughs> we all do, right? Yeah, so. well, I mean, are we not all working <laughs> right. with particles? Right. But, but yes, yeah. he, is a, he a, was an accelerator physicist. He's fine. Yeah. He's just retired. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's what he did. Like, how is that though? Because like my, my parents didn't go to college and like I didn't even know what a physicist was. I really liked astronomy and kind of fell into physics. But like as a kid, like you knew what physics was mm -hmm. like pretty soon, I'm guessing. Like when was your first like I know what physics is and maybe I don't want to do that or I do want to do that? Oh boy, I have no recollection of not. No, I mean, that's my dad's <laughs> profession. Right. It's like growing up and if your father's a cobbler, you're going to know about shoes, right. you know? Right. Well, but I mean, but you wear shoes. I mean, like, my dad was a, worked in, like, the phone company. You live in our physical universe. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I didn't, like, but I didn't know the difference between, like, physics versus chemistry versus biology and all that kind of stuff. So when you were a kid, did you, like... They're all just applied physics. Oh, God. <laughs> so did you ever want to be a physicist, then? Were you like, I want to be like my dad? No, I never wanted to be a physicist. Yeah. No slight on dad. No, it's that's just, okay. um... I liked math a lot when I was yeah. younger, when I was in high school and, and the first year of college or so, I was really into math and I thought maybe I'd go into pure math. Yeah. But um, what I really, I, I always wanted to be a writer, as long as I could remember, yeah. even when I was a wee tot. I was used your to, dad like, yes, writer? Uh, my dad was like, whatever you want, man. Wow, you know? that's awesome. Uh, my mom was also a big influence. She was a, an, an electrical engineer. Oh, wow. So I grew up in a nerd kind of household. Yeah. Although for, for dad, science is, is really a passion. For mom, electrical engineering was just a job. Right. And now that she's like retired, she doesn't have any interest in it or the field or anything. <laughs> this is what she did to, to pay the bills. Wow, I think, okay. I think I got the literary side more from mom because she loves okay. to read. Oh, okay. And, so maybe uh, that was like her secret passion too? It wasn't so secret. I mean, okay. she <laughs> loved reading. I mean, <laughs> loves present tense. But also still too. alive, my mother. What's that? Did she, did she write as well? No, she didn't write. Okay. Uh, she just liked to read. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, but also my father, uh, my dad, big into science fiction stories, and he had a bookshelf uh, jam-packed full of sci-fi novels from the 50s and 60s, his youth. Right. And uh, so I grew up reading those. So I'm, I'm Gen X, you know, I'm 45 years old, 
but it turns out I ended up, I grew up reading baby boomer science fiction. Right. So it's like I'd be reading a science fiction, but you know, this is in the 1980s, reading a science fiction book, and at the halfway point, there's an ad for Kent cigarettes. You know, <laughs> and then you just kind of keep going. Right. And you're like, yeah, that's awesome. My dad had a big poster that was a map of the moon, but it's just the near side. And right. I'm like, why, why no map of the far side? He's like, check the date. The map was printed in 1959. Mm -hmm. We didn't know what the other side of the moon looked like in right. 1959, not till the Soviets sent a probe around it. Right. No, that's, su that's super. I, I, I mean, <laughs> that's I, all they knew about the moon. <laughs> no, I haven't even thought of that. I, I want to let Jonathan ask yeah, some questions, too. Yeah, just kind of piggybacking off yeah, of that. Yeah, screw him. I am curious. Did you have a defining moment in your life that pushed you towards the sciences where you were like, that's what I want to do? I want to be a programmer? Or was no, no specific defining moment. I've just always had an interest in science. I always wanted to be a writer, uh, but I like regular meals. So um, when the time came to choose, you know, when I was going to college, I chose software engineering as my major. But there's also that issue, not computer science, but with other sciences where people are like, well, are you going to be like poor forever? I mean, is that why you, well, I, I remember reading that you had a job offer very early in your life to do computer science. Well, I was a computer programmer at 15. Right. Working for a national lab, which was sort of anomalous. It was kind of weird. But basically that, that makes it sound like I'm some, you know, child prodigy thing like that. But really it was just that lab, Sandia Labs, was just on the edge of the town I lived in, Livermore, California. Okay. And... <clears throat> And they, uh, they did this program where they hired local teenagers to do, like, to, you know, clean test tubes or, you mm -hmm. know, whatever. And I was one of them. Okay. But then that, the lab I ended up being hired into said, well, we don't really need anybody to clean test tubes, but we do need somebody to write software to, like, you know, do big operations on large data sets. Right. Because this was before Excel existed or anything like that. And they're like, there's a computer. Here's a book on how to program computers. Go over there. So you didn't even know it. Like, you right. were, like, thrown into that. Yep. Oh, my God. And I loved it. Yeah. I was like, I really like doing this. And yeah. actually, you know, 25 years as a computer programmer, I really enjoyed that career. And I quit my last engineering job to go full-time on writing. This was after The Martian was already selling well, and it was clear I could live off of it. I, it, it was not... It was not a take this job and shove it situation. I yeah. was actually really reluctant to leave. I hung on to that job right. a lot longer than I had to just because I liked it. I know I have this problem where like I, I still teach and I still do this stuff because I still want to be seen as like a scientist instead of doing other things that I do. I do like inclusion work and outreach and stuff like that. So was there any part of that like in not wanting to let go of being a computer scientist or engineer? I don't I don't I don't think there was any particular urge to not let go of the profession mm -hmm. because I mean I can always do side projects of my own at home it's true. I actually kind of have to make a rule not to do that because if I do then that's all I'll do I'll do that instead of writing because I'm really bad at self-discipline but your editors will call you and yell at you there would be some of that yeah um, but um, I didn't want to leave my uh, office mates and stuff. Oh. I, I, I liked my coworkers. Yeah. I liked my boss. I, I enjoyed that company. Mm -hmm. It was called Mobile Iron. It's still called Mobile Iron. It was a good place to work. And um, I miss, that's the biggest, the biggest adjustment for me, uh, transitioning from, you know, uh, being an engineer to being a writer yeah. full time was the lack of coworkers. Mm -hmm. Just now you're by yourself yeah. all day. And I'm a fairly social guy. So yeah. that was a little rough on me. I don't think too many people feel sorry for me. You know, this is a serious, like, <laughs> yeah. zeroth world problem right. to have. But yeah, it was well, an adjustment. It's. I, I think it's. I mean, it's very real. My, my husband's a, an attorney, and he's not an extrovert. He does not like talking to people. But he's had to work in an office by himself for like multiple years, and it's actually getting. It's gotten to him too. I mean, I think it's a human 
thing that we want to talk to people, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> well, I also really like being part of a team. Right. A collective effort against a common problem. Right. All of us right. working on the same software was neat. Now I'm by myself on the book. Right. You know? And right. I wouldn't want to work, uh, I, I don't think I'd want to like work with like six other authors on a book. Exactly. I think that right. would be bad. Well, one would be good though. There's the Terry Pratchett and like Neil Gaiman. Yeah, right? Good Omens. And good Omens, which yep. is one of, Great book. But. Yeah, but actually, I like the just straight Terry Pratchett books better. I don't. Like, I actually like. The you will be conducting yeah. the rest of this interview. No. I do like I love, them. But I, I love Terry Pratchett. Yeah. I'm a big fan. I am too. Oh, just the Night Watch is the Night Watch series is the one I, I love the most. Okay, so. you like you like the, the yeah. yes so the yeah, like Pork uh, City. No, yeah, Nightmare, yeah, love it. So going back to when we were talking about the transition from being you know a scientist Mailed to being a writer. Oh, different thing. <laughs> different. We're not thing. there yet. Okay, go on. So uh, <laughs> what I'm curious about is it is very very challenging to be able to communicate complex scientific topics like chemistry, um, you know, especially in things like that are in engineering and physics to the common reader. Um, what did it take for you to get to that point where you could comfortably do that? Well, for the Martian, well, and also for Artemis, uh, I needed it, basically humor. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do a massive exposition dump on the reader, you need to give them some reason to want to keep reading it. Mm -hmm. And so for the Martian especially, and for Artemis also, it's make it funny. If, if they're going to learn something, make it funny. And that, that's the first-person smart-ass narration style that, that both books have. Let's me get away with that somewhat. Yeah. I mean, did you... Did you train on how to make things funny, though? I mean, like, were you, did you? I think being a smartass has always come naturally to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I mean, like, I, like, I know that you've, you've researched really, really hard with all the science, and, and I remember reading that you said that, like, um, the main character in The Martian is the person that you would like to be, the kind of scientist you would like He's to be. the right? idealized version of me. Right, yeah. right. And, and so this idea all, of... all my good qualities and none of my many, many flaws. Right. So, <laughs> no, seriously, I, I that's... I shouldn't, like, say, right, you're right, flaws. Right, you're, I mean, um. he's considerably more attractive than you, Andy, for instance. <laughs> well, no. I don't know. We don't want to go down the Matt Damon train here, but um, <laughs> but but I, I I think it's interesting to talk. I, I've talked to authors before about like not just researching the science part of it, which is what Jonathan was talking about, and but there's also that aspect of science communication, and that's like a skill that people have hmm. to actually learn. And but there's also other things you can research, like you know social dynamics, like you were saying, like working in a team, you know, um, uh, how pe certain people exist in certain societies and certain different groups. I mean, do you research all these other things too? Mostly I just research the science and I kind of make up the rest. All right. And, you know, right or wrong. I, right. My, my goal is to entertain, not really to educate as much. I, okay. I, if I accidentally educate people, fantastic. Right. Great. But really my number one objective is I want you to enjoy the book. Right. That's it. No, no message, no moral, no, no lesson, just please like the book. Right. And if you don't, then I've failed. And if you do, I've <laughs> succeeded. It's as simple as that. Right. And, and so similarly then, um, when it came to doing the research for the book, because obviously The Martian took a lot of research. It took a mm -hmm. lot of knowledge to be able to get it so as accurate as it could be. Um, where did you draw the line and say, like, all right, I need to stop researching and I need to start <laughs> writing this book? Or was it all kind of a combined process? I, I think I never drew that line. I just went way further down the rabbit hole than I ever needed to go for The Martian. I mean, I calculated the orbital trajectory to get from Earth to Mars with a constantly accelerating ion craft engine and 
had to do all the simulation. And so I wrote my own software. Like the it's transfer like, orbits and all that yep, kind of stuff. Yep. Right. Yeah. And some uh, orbital dynamicists at uh, JPL checked my work and said I was right to within 1% or 2%. And you're like, that's fine. That's pretty good. <laughs> of course, if you were off by 1% or 2%, you'd miss Mars entirely. But, yeah. but this is a book. This is a book. <laughs> so we're good. Well, yeah, no, I, I, I think um, Jonathan was actually telling me that his mom was reading it, and she, she, I will let you tell that story. Yeah, she was reading it, and, and she, she has never really taken chemistry before. I think she took it a long time ago in high school, but she understood the whole process when it came to the uh, making water out of the rocket fuel, because oh, cool. it was so easily explained. So I think that's kind of what we were asking is, how were you able to do that? Hmm, I don't know. <laughs> it was in the books. <laughs> Great interview, guys. <laughs> Hell if I know. No, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I just um, I knew I had to get that information across, and so I tried to describe it in a kind of layman's terms, right. and uh, also throw a bunch of human in there. Human. Well, throw human. there's human there's humor. one human in there, but yeah. also humor right. in there, uh, just to keep the reader engaged in the content. Because right. if you just I didn't want it to read like a Wikipedia article, right? Yeah. No offense to Wikipedia, it's great that's when that's what for. you're looking for. Yeah. But if you want to be entertained. Uh, unless you're me, I can read a Wikipedia article about like, you know, you know how it is. You're like, oh, okay, I need to know. I, I need to know when the Seven Years' War ended. Ten minutes later, giraffe meeting calls. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here. That's my, that's my like most favorite game. A wiki wander. Yeah, love it. I, I do want to bring us back to your short story though, The mm -hmm. Egg, which I um I just I watched one of the like fan created videos like it's it's so good actually oh, thank you um and and it made me it, the instant i even saw the title i instantly thought about hg wells the crystal egg the oh. short story okay i don't I know if you've it. ever oh nope. it's so good um it's about mars actually and, it, and the egg itself is um basically this window to Mars, and it's a very good short story, and it's totally different from yours. But like, it, but, but it It's very me, good. No, no, totally, totally different, different than yours. <laughs> no, no, no. Edit that. It's not like yours at all. <laughs> no. Uh, oh no, that no, stays. <laughs> no. It's a totally different plot. It's I totally know. different premise. I know it's, they're both very good. Um, but it made me think, yeah, backing it up. Um, but it made me think of just kind of the genre of the short story and talking about sci-fi. And, and I really liked your perspective of, you know, that we are everyone. And, and Spoiler. Yeah. It's been out for like almost 10 years. Right, right. It's a, uh, I'm not, I was about to say something else that's terrible about ha um, Harry Potter, but I won't. Um, but so, <laughs> I'll tell you later. Darth Vader? No. Luke's father. Luke's father, yeah, as I'm leaving the Rosebud theater. was a sled. It was a, a sled. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting that one rapper logic, do you know about this? Yeah. Like, that's so awesome. That yeah, his, he like, asked whole... permission first. Oh my God. So rapper yeah. logic basically made his album like the concept that started that album was your story, mm -hmm. and and he put. I'm I'm one of the. I'm on the cover. Are there's, you really? There's a whole bunch of. It's like, like your a, face. Yeah, there there. It's like a Sergeant Pepper style oh, okay. cover with like a bajillion people all and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But I'm one of the. Oh. But like, but we were just talking about this idea of working on a, in a team and being isolated. But the egg, the Martian, are both very isolating stories. Yep. Is that like what happened huh. there? Yeah, good question. <laughs> um, I guess. Uh, well, first off, it's it's easier to tell a story when you just have one person right. dealing with. I mean, The Martian is really just uh, straight up survival mm -hmm. story. It's a it's a it's a 
good old-fashioned Robinsonade is the right. category that they're called. Hardly a new concept. It's just, you know, Apollo 13 meets Castaway. So it's right. Tom Hanks, I guess. It's all about with Tom Matt Hanks. Damon. With Tom Hanks. Right. Though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Tom Hanks with Matt Damon is saving Private Ryan. Try to keep up. Right. It's so true. That's true. <laughs> You're right. I'm not that much younger than you. I have seen these movies. <laughs> and I get these references. I understood that reference. Yeah, exactly. I understand that <laughs> reference as well. I love Captain America. Super excited about Infinity Wars. <clears throat> but anyway, see, we're just anyway, going down that rabbit hole. Down the rabbit hole. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I just wanted to commend you on that because I really, oh, I, I really disliked short stories. I'm gonna start that. I, mean, I dislike short stories, but I started listening to them after Lavar Burton reads his podcast, and I started oh, like yeah. reading more, and I read the. H.G. Wells one, and I'm like, I get this now. I get what a so short story is, and yours is very good. So, well, so going back to the the <coughs> technology of the Martian, um, you know, obviously a lot of it was based off of real technology that is either uh, has been developed or is currently being developed. Um, where do you see, I guess, technology? You know, in or where do you see the future of space technology in the next fifty years? Fifty years. Yeah. Well, the most important thing is to drive down the cost to low Earth orbit. I don't think we're really going to get anywhere until that gets done. Um, you've got companies like uh, SpaceX working on that um, famously, but then also other companies are more quietly doing the same thing, like Boeing, Orbital ATK. They're all working to be competitive in getting uh, freight to low Earth orbit. Once um, competition drives that price down, there'll be some magical point when uh, middle-class people can afford to go into space, and then there'll be a whole space boom, and it'll be like the commercial airline industry. Once that happens, then we'll start to see real space tourism. Uh, it becomes viable to have a tourist destination on the moon, which is what Artemis is about, and so on. So I think that's kind of the direction that we have to go first. As for um, government, you know, missions to put humans on Mars, the flags and footprints type, type of uh, missions, I really think that they need to invent, um, well, two things they really need to work on. One is ion propulsion, as depicted in the Martian, and that's real technology that exists right now. Right. Um, and the other one is they need to start doing centripetal gravity. Because if you, if you have someone in zero G for eight months on their way to Mars, then as soon as they step out on the surface, they're just gonna go you know, people have to be carried out of those Soyuz capsules when they come back from ISS. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, let, let's talk about Artemis a little bit. This idea of tourism on the moon is, I mean, it, it has been around, right? Most, most recently in my memory, uh, actually the, the first time I remember it was Futurama. <laughs> um, right? I mean, that's a good, that's uh, a good yeah, episode. Yeah, not, not, that, that is a good episode. Yeah. Whalers on the moon. Yeah, exa exactly. <laughs> where did you, like, where did the idea of this, like, first, like, bubble up into your, into your psyche? Um, I think the main thing is I, like, uh, I, I wanted to write a story that takes place in humanity's first city that's not on Earth. Okay. And so I'm like, okay, where, where's that going to be? It could either be in low Earth orbit or the moon or Mars, right? Um, or I guess solar orbit. But, yeah, but that's boring. For anything that's, well, boring or not, I want to be realistic. <laughs> right. um, uh, and so I realized the moon is the obvious place to put it because right. uh, there's a lot of natural resources there. There's a lot of metals. There's plenty of oxygen trapped in the, in the, in the ore mm -hmm. that you can smelt and get out. Um, so you can build your city mostly out of stuff that's available right there on the surface of the moon. It's very close. If you, were, uh, if you were on a football field and you're standing at one goal line and Mars was at the other goal line, the moon would be four inches in front of you. Right. So that gives you an idea of the scale of distance. It's close enough that 
if you get to the point where getting to low Earth orbit is something middle class people can afford, it's not that much more expensive to go to the moon. Right. So your story talks about a colony that's on the moon. But until we get to that point, how do you see, what, what can an everyday person do to get involved with the, the, the space process? Just jump, jump, Just jump really jump high. Really high. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, of course, you could go into just about any field, um, one way or another, leads back to space technology. Um, just about any scientific discipline has applications in space technology. I personally think what, what space technology needs more than anything else is materials tech. Um, okay. Creating new materials that can either, if you could make something that had an extremely high heat resistance, uh, like f higher than anything we have, or um, you know w something that didn't expand or uh, expand or contract too much due to temperature, and something that could handle extreme heat and a decent amount of pressure. We're talking about some super material. Then you could make um, booster engines that take the full advantage of the specific impulse that hydrogen and oxygen fuel has. Right now, if you try to if you mix hydrogen and oxygen, which is the best fuel there is in terms of chemical propulsion you need the least amount of mass of it to get the maximum velocity out of your ship. Um, if you try to do it at, at stoichiometric values, in other words, you have, you're, you're making, you have exactly the right amount of hydrogen and oxygen to make just water. If you do it that way, you're gonna melt your engine. So they always have to do it like at a six to one ratio. It's like really, really inefficient yeah. because yeah. they have to do that to keep the engine cool enough to not melt. So if you solve that problem, and that, that would be solved with materials technology. Also, if you had some super material that could withstand an enormous amount of pressure, you could store the fuel in a smaller volume. Uh, smaller volume means lighter spacecraft. That saves money, too. Right. And if you can come up with something that has a tensile strength up in the 60 gigapascals um, range, uh, which we're not even anywhere near inventing, then you could make a space elevator. Well, yeah, I, I thought that we were with that. Yeah. So, I mean, are, are you pro-space elevator if we could have something like that? If we had the material. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if that material existed. Yeah. yeah. But even you, the most... explain what a space elevator is for people who don't know? <laughs> I barely know. Um, I, can, I can. Yeah. Well, the idea is that, you know, Earth is spinning around once per day. Uh, well, if you imagine spinning a rock around on a string, it'll stay out there, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, how long would you have to make a tether such that the rotation of Earth would keep a cable taut, you know, would keep it tight out with a counterweight out here, such that now you would just have a line going straight up into space, and then you could have an elevator that just climbs that line. Now you no longer need propellant to get up and down, you just need energy, and that's a lot easier. Okay. Um, and the problem is that, imagine you take a rope, and you have an infinite pit, okay, and you're Superman, you can hold up any amount of mass. Okay, you take the rope and you start lowering it into the pit. Well eventually the amount of rope that's in the pit is getting heavier and heavier and heavier, and it's still dangling, right? And you, you have no problem holding it up, but eventually just the weight of the rope will equal the tensile strength of the rope. And so it snaps, just mm -hmm. from the weight of the rope alone. And you're like, no problem, I'll just braid two ropes together. Well, then it snaps at exactly the same length, because you have doubled the cross-sectional surface area, but you've also doubled the weight below it. So the only solution is to use, okay, I'm gonna use a steel cable. Well, now you can go further down, but it will also eventually mm -hmm. snap. And you're like, okay, I'm going to use carbon fiber. Okay, it'll go further even, but it'll still snap. And we are nowhere near that breaking strength, that ultimate yield strength necessary to make something like a space elevator. Okay. But not, well, just snapping from <laughs> tensile strength, but there's also, I, I was 
I was reading about this and the people are also worried about what if it breaks for other reasons and like that kind of disaster and damage that would do of this thing coming down or it, it depends on where it would break, right? If it right. would go up versus down. Um, well, yeah. So, so I don't know. There's that problem as well. That problem is probably less of an issue because you could probably have it like, you know, self-destruct thing. I'll break it up into a bunch of pieces and it'll fall down slower and well, stuff like that. Sounds Sci-fi. I know. Yeah. Right. Could write a whole book on it. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be the first yeah. to write a book so, about a space elevator. Um, for people who a lot of that would, would seem confusing to them, um, and maybe it's because they just don't enjoy science or math for whatever reason. So, what advice would you give to a student who's currently struggling with the enjoyment of math and science? Well, I mean, this is not what teachers want to hear, but if you're not enjoying math or science, then maybe that's not the field for you. There's no reason to force yourself into something you don't want to do. Um, but if you like it and are struggling with understanding it, then there's a lot of tools at your disposal. If it's something that's interesting to you and you're just having a hard time grasping it, then there are a lot of ways to try to grasp it. And uh, fortunately, now the internet has all sorts of tutorials and there's all sorts of ways to learn it if you want. Right. But if you're fundamentally not interested, then it, 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 if you're fundamentally just not interested in it in any way, then it's probably not fair to try to push yourself into it. Yeah, I mean, I think that maybe people might not know that the things they're interested in do have this base in science, though. There's that issue, well, there's, too, right? There's so much stuff that has a base in science, but by, yeah. the same, by the same token, like, my very life depends on medical science, right. and I'm not going to go become a doctor. Right, right. Um, I, I just rely on, I rely on subject experts to, to do that for me. Right. And so just if you're not interested in math or science, you're like, yeah, I like using my iPhone, but I don't need to know how to make one. Right. So the, in The Martian, you have these characters, Vincent Kapoor, you have um, Commander Lewis, you have Johansson. All of these are people who come from traditionally marginalized communities. Was that intentional on your part? Well, Johansson's just a white woman. Well, so she's a woman. Oh, I see. Okay, yes. got it. Whereas compared, when, you look at, when you look at Mission Control in 1955, you know, 1960, it was all young white men. Mm -hmm. um, so was that... No, there were some old, old white, white men. Old white men, too. <laughs> there was a, there was plenty a of nice diversity. There were old white men, young, young white men, men <laughs> people yes. who smoked this kind of cigarette, people <laughs> yeah. who smoked that kind of cigarette. That's very accurate. <laughs> so I guess my question about that is, though, for you, is um, was that a conscious decision on your part to include them in the books, or how did they come into being? Yeah. Um, a lot of it was based on just the realities of NASA's demographics. It really is very diverse. Uh, the astronauts are actually 50-50 men and women now. Mm -hmm. they, they, they do that on purpose. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and uh, in the science Field, science fields in America. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, South Asians and East Asians in in the sciences. Yes, <laughs> I'm half Mexican too, but that's okay. There you go. Even more diversity. Yes. You're just this big pile of diversity. I am. That's why I have this show. There you go. There you go. Take that out there. There you go. <laughs> well, it, it, it's a pleasure to be on your affirmative action-based show. I do. Yeah, I'm diversifying it. There um, we are. Yes. No, but well. I, I think John uh, Jonathan brings up a, a good point because I know that you would put out your um, chapters like mm -hmm. online and were there anyone who was like, hey, it would be really nice if this character looked like me or like anything like that. None of that happened. No, online? really on online. The only the only changes I made based on feedback were fact checking. Oh, okay. So like you made a mistake in this math or you got the chemistry <laughs> wrong here that and that right. was and I did make those mistakes and I corrected them. Thanks oh, okay. to my readers, but not story advice or things okay. like that or character or character or character ethnicity. 
okay. or anything like that. So that was all um, you? That was all me. Okay. <laughs> um, when I come up with a character, I tend to kind of say, all right, Brain, I need somebody to do this. And yeah. it hand, like for the commander, I don't know why I decided she was a woman. I don't yeah. remember consciously making that decision. I'm like, I need uh, the leader of the mission. I started imagining and right. somehow I ended up with a woman. Right. Well, I well, I was talking to Jonathan about sci-fi that I used to read and, and those books were not very diverse at all. Well, <laughs> in the 50s and stuff like yeah. that, the women are still basically in the back of the rocket Nurses. washing dishes yeah. and stuff. I mean, it's really, yeah. it, they don't stand up, but right. they were okay for their time. You know, they, they were, they were yeah. for their day. <laughs> Well, if you read something like, uh, actually, Heinlein was a lot more progressive than people think. We were just talking about that. Yeah, I mean, he, he got a into his complicated figure. He got into his <laughs> weird, dirty old man phase in the early '80s. But before right. that, like, you know, in Starship Troopers, like the entire Space Navy was all women. Right. Um, and also, uh, Tunnel in the Sky, which he wrote. Uh, was his like third It's your novel. favorite book I read. It's one of my favorite <laughs> books. Um, the main character is actually black. Yeah. But at the time, there would never have allowed right. him to say, and this guy's black. Right. Um, so uh, right. he puts in clues and hints in the book that the main character is black, but right. doesn't do it outright so the publisher wouldn't know. Yeah, no, I, I well, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I do want to say that it, it is good. It was progressive at the time, but I think we also... Times change. Times change. Times change. And, and, and a lot was, of that stuff doesn't stand up now. Yeah, but, no, and all the sci-fi okay. books, like, human versus, human is white, and, like, human is English language, you know, human language is English language, and it was, it was, I didn't realize any of this until I started picking it up again in my adulthood, and I was like, oh, man. Well, I, was I mean, like, Thomas Jefferson had slaves, but he wrote, yeah. he wrote the, you know, he wrote the Declaration no, of Independence. I it's I like, it's, it's all very you got to just, you got to grade on a curve. You do. <laughs> but, but I want to end, yeah, I want to end on a, on a We're good We're getting one note. of these from now. Literally yeah. everyone behind yeah, me. Everyone. That's everyone. awesome. There are people no. walking by on the street. Yeah. No, no. I, I wanted to well, uh, thank you for being on our show. And well, I actually do me. appreciate how diverse and welcoming your books have been trying to be, especially The Martian and, oh, and everything. So I wanted to thank you for being here and talking to us. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks thank for you. And thank you to Village. Thank and, you. Yeah. And, and thank you to Village Books for sponsoring you to be here. And Village Books is awesome. It's a great local bookstore. Village here Books. At, in, in Bellingham, Washington. Village Books. Yeah. <laughs> Bellingham, Washington. All right. Awesome. <laughs> Yay, we're done. Thanks for joining us. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE Spark Radio and Western Washington University. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I wrap, you think iodine, nitrate, activate. Right, uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients, they can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.